So, this is part three of our current event and weekly Bible study for November 18th, 2007. We're continuing this study on the, uh, the, how the witches view abortion as a sacrament. And this part is called Battling Jezebel. In one of the few instances where they both agree, both Miss Magazine and the Bible label these various permutations of spiritual deception as witchcraft. Biblically, witchcraft is linked to a rebellion, specifically rebellion against God's authority. And this is what it really boils down to. This can be heard in the feminist chant, quote, not the church, not the state, women must decide our fate, end of quote. You talk about rebellion. And rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. Not the church, not the state, women must decide our fate. And it ends with an exclamation point. And that's the feminist chant. That's one. That's the the mantra of their religion. Okay. Yes. So if we go further, um, so it's true that the state should have minimal saying in deciding anyone's fate, male or female. But the state's intrusion into a woman's fate in forbidding abortion is infinitesimally small compared to the the pro-abortion decision that the unborn child's fate should be death. Because if you think about that, let's just read that again. The state, But the state's intrusion into a woman's fate in forbidding abortion is infinitesimally small compared to the, the abortion, the pro-abortion or, or the woman who wants an abortion's decision that an unborn child's fate should be death. You know? But see, the state doesn't even do this. They, they actually allow the murder instead of preventing it. Okay, so the state is actually allowing this murder to take place because abortion's been legalized, or aborticide has been legalized. So, you know, it's, it's just such hypocrisy here. But the church, as God's representative on, in the earth, should assist in deciding the fate of all those who desire to do God's will. The only alternative is to choose one's fate or own will. And this is rebellion, the foundation of all witchcraft. Okay, so rebellion as, is as the sin of all witchcraft. Okay, so this is, this is the thing that we're trying to drive home here. Um, when we consider the word witchcraft, one Bible personally comes to mind. Jezebel. In 1 Kings 18.19, Elijah the prophet of God mentions Jezebel among with some of the other deities we know about. He asked to see the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel represents the corrupting influence of witchcraft. Now if we go to Revelation 2.20 Revelation 2.20 Uh, speaking to the church of Thyatira, notwithstanding I have a few things against thee, this is basically Jesus Christ talking to the church of Thyatira, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and, sedu- and to seduce my servants to commit fornications. Now, the Bible says in the New Testament that I will not suffer a woman to teach or to usurp authority over a man. Now, many times, you know, that's what the Bible says, and I'm sorry, you can call me a male chauvinist or whatever, but your argument is really with the Word of God. Not to say that a woman can't, you know, um, teach, you know, like it talks about the older woman teaching the younger woman and these types of things. But I'm talking about when you have a woman in a church, 
who's, and, and you see this a lot in the Pentecostal circles, where they're calling themselves a prophet or a prophetess, and this is what Jezebel was doing here in the Bible. And then it says, because thou sufferest, now the word sufferest means to permit. They're permitting this woman, Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants. Well, this is not really a, a spiritual um, thumbs up for letting women teach in the church. I'm sorry, it's not. It's, it's not like if you read this verse, it doesn't really give you a strong advocation that women are supposed to be teaching in the church. But she was teaching, and she was seducing the servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. So, um, if we go to 1 Timothy 2.12, 1 Timothy 2.12, well, let's just start at verse uh, 9. In like manner also, the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, that doesn't go on in most churches in today's day and age, with shamefacedness and sobriety, Shamefacedness and sobriety would, would imply a meek and humble spirit. And sobriety means she's sober. You shall, you know, sobriety. Not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. In other words, you know, all this. And that doesn't even mention makeup, but I mean, makeup is another huge issue that goes on. Um, you know, too. Then it says in verse 10, But which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, I'm sorry, but I can't read this and come away with saying that it's right to have women teachers in churches. Even if they don't call themselves pastors. I'm not saying that, like I said, we're an elder woman teaching the younger woman and these types of things. But I'm talking about where the woman's behind the pulpit up there teaching. It's particularly if there's men present. Okay? And... Particularly somebody like Joyce Myers, who calls herself a preacher. There is no possible... The, the Bible says that a deacon, or a bishop, which is essentially, you know, in reference to a deacon, or a preacher, or a pastor, must be the husband of one wife. Not the wife of one husband. But it says it over and over, the husband of one wife. It's, it's a foregone conclusion that wasn't even worth... wasn't even a point of debate up until recently. Okay, and then it says, for Adam was first formed, and then Eve. And Eve, and here we just talked about this verse, uh, and Eve was not deceived, but the woman was deceived in the transgression. See, by nature of a woman's, uh, of the way that God made a woman, she's more easily deceived. Okay, and that's why the man is to be the head over the, the woman, and Jesus Christ is to be the head of the man. Okay, but... Uh, it says here, and uh, you know, you could say I'm a male chauvinist pig or whatever, but I'm, I'm saying the Bible says right here, Adam was not deceived. But again, what I had said before, um, when we were off, um, when I turned off the uh, mic for a second, was that probably in God's eyes, what Adam did was, was in a lot of ways more grievous to God, because Adam knew better. Where it says right here, it says the woman was deceived when she partook of the tree, you know, the knowledge of good or evil that Satan offered to her. Okay, the woman was deceived, Adam really wasn't deceived, but what he ultimately ended up doing is picking Eve over the Lord Jesus Christ. So, and then it says in verse 15, not standing, oh, I don't even want to get into this, because that's a whole other can of worms, okay? Because I've talked about this before. Um, so, if we go further, let's go to Matthew 13.33. 
Matthew 13.33. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. Okay, now, in this, in regard to this verse, we have a woman, and that it's talking about here, and the symbols have in scripture a meaning fixed by inspired usage. Leaven is a principle of corruption working subtly, is invariably used always in a bad sense. Okay, always. Like a little leaven, leaven at the whole lump, purge ye out therefore the old leaven, that the whole lump be made new. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, and it is defined by our Lord as evil doctrine. In Matthew 16.11, in Mark 18.15, meal, on the contrary, was used in one of the sweet savor offerings in Leviticus 2, 1-3, and was food for the priests in Leviticus 6, 15-17. A woman, in a bad ethical sense, now I'm not saying, this isn't a knock against women, I'm saying in scripture, when she's mentioned in parables and things of this nature, in a bad ethical sense, typically symbolizes something out of place religiously. Wasn't Jezebel that it talked about here something out of place religiously? Wasn't it Jezebel when it overtly talked about it in the Old Testament? When she had, you know, the prophets of Baal and Asherah? Wasn't that something religiously out of place? Wasn't she being put in a position that God never called her to be? I don't mention, I don't remember seeing where God called the Levitical priesthood, where it talked about women in the Levitical priesthood. Was there ever any women in the Levitical priesthood? None! There's no scriptural precedent for this. So, it always symbolizes something out of place. Let's go to Zechariah 5, 6 to prove that. Uh, 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 just a further confirmation. This is the one where I, that I take people to that say that when they have their, their women angels with wings, uh, I take them here. Because they say, well, where has where it said anything bad about women angel with wings? That's a good thing. No, it's not. It's straight from the pit of hell. And we're going to see that. So, in Zechariah chapter 5, this is the, um, in regard to the angel talking to Zechariah, then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up thou thine eyes and see that which is going forth. And if we go down to, and then in verse 7 it says, I beheld there was lifted, and the angel showing Zechariah this vision, and I beheld there lifted up a talent of lead, and this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. And he said, the angel said, this is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of the lead upon the mouth thereof, and then I lift up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the heaven and the earth. Okay, so these women that had wings, which are totally unbiblical, I don't ever see anywhere in the Bible where angels that appeared to men on earth ever appeared with wings. They always appeared as male men. Okay, never as women with wings. And never that I can find as a, as a man with wings. Okay, now again, I'm not going to say that, that from a... Um, from a spiritual standpoint, there can't be women or, or angels with wings up in heaven or anything like that. But I'm telling you, the way they always appeared in the Bible, they were men without wings. And they didn't have halos either, which is a symbolic of the Egyptian sun disk. So the ultimate abomination is when you have a woman appearing with wings with a halo. 
I mean, that's like the devil himself. Okay? And I'm not, that's not a crack against women. I'm just saying this is one of the main ways Satan deceives. Evidenced by this, on my mom's desk, she loves her angels. And guess what angels she's got? Women with wings. But yet she wants nothing to do with Christianity. She's rapidly opposed to anything. But yet it's okay to have women with wings. What spirit is inspiring her and attracting her to that? It's sure not God. So that's another confirmation I get. I look at things around me to see, you know, what's going on here. Now, and then it said they had wings like the wings of a stork. A stork is um, an unclean bird in the Bible, okay? Not the bird that delivers the babies, okay? So, um, the, with a stork-winged woman whose only function is to bear the ephah and the woman away into Babylonia and Shinar, so we read that in verse 11. And he said unto me built, to build it in an house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. So they're going to bear this ephod to Shinar, which is Babylon. So we're talking about something that's always mentioned in a negative connotation in Scripture. Babylon, Shinar, a woman, which is something that typically represents something religiously out of place in Scripture. She had wings as the wings of a stork, which is an unclean bird. These are all negative connotations here. Every bit of it. So again, um, in, in Matthew 13.33, which we just read, a woman is dealing with a do- with um, doctrine, which is a spear, and I don't mean a spear that you throw, a spear, that is forbidden to her, according to 1 Timothy 2.12, which we read earlier. Where it says, I, t- I suffer not a woman to teach, but to learn in silence. Okay? So, doctrine, which it talks about another parable, spake he unto them. This, again, is going back to Matthew thirteen thirty three. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven. Leaven is always typically associated with bad doctrine. Okay? Which a woman took. So, the woman took the leaven, which is symbolic of bad doctrine, and hid this in three measures of meal. This is what Joyce Riley or not Joyce Riley, Joyce Myers is doing. And these other women preachers wearing the pants up in the pulpit. And I mean that literally, because they typically don't wear dresses. So they're, that's what they're doing. And so, in a, in a bad ethical sense, the woman in Matthew 13.33 is dealing with doctrine, a spirit that's forbidden to her, according to 1 Timothy 2.12. In Thyatira, a woman is suffered you, you know, to teach. She's permitted to teach, which is what we read in Revelation 2.20. The Babylonian phase of the apostate church is symbolized by an unchaste, unsubmissive woman, sodden with greed and luxury and commercialism, and this is according to Revelation 17, 1-6. Why don't we go there? Revelation 17, 1-6. We're just we're pointing out ex- examples in Scripture to back up what we're saying here. And there came out of one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come, come thither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Okay, so this is the judgment of the great whore, this woman, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And this is what Jezebel was, was um, permitting, both in the Old Testament and in, in Revelation 2.20, where she was 
she was uh, she was teaching fornication and to eat things that were offered to uh, idols. So it carried me carried me away in the spirit under the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her head, upon her forehead, was the name written, Mystery Babylon. Where was this? Where was this? Uh, these angels that, that we just talked about in Zechariah, they had the wings of a stork that were, were, were described as wicked by the angel, where were they carrying the ephah to? To the land of Shinar, which is Babylon. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. It said upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. So, again, I think we've hopefully proved our point here in, in regard to this matter. Um, so if we go further, it just okay. So and again, this uh, other note I'm reading here: interpreting this parable, particularly the one in Matthew thirteen thirty-three, it constitutes a warning that the true doctrine given for the nourishment of the children of the kingdom of God which is made reference into in Matthew 4, 4, 1 Timothy 4, 6, and 1 Peter 2, 2, this true doctrine would ultimately, unfortunately, be mingled with corrupt and corrupting false doctrine. Remember, a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump. Remember, Jesus says, beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But at first, he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And when they came to him later, he said, I, what I meant was beware of the doctrine because remember, he spoke in parables many times, and then cleared that up a little bit later. So, it was predicted here that this was going to happen, that this was going to be corrupted with false doctrine, that officially, and, and accepted officially by the apostate church. According to 1 Timothy 4.1, remember, uh, the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says, Purge out the old leaven, that the whole lump be made new. And it was in reference to the church there that had been corrupted with this leaven. In 2 Peter 2, 1-3, it makes reference to this. So, anyway, I just thought that was a little bit necessary to kind of get into that real quick, uh, to kind of clarify this, this situation a little bit more. So, this admonition that we were talking about in Revelation 2.20 about Jezebel, Cuts to the heart of the American church. Truly the church in America and much of the world has become the modern equivalent of the church of Thyatira and the Laodicean church of Revelation 3. Jezebel has been tolerated and even ordained. According to World Magazine, one of, quote, one of the religious left's premier organizations is the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights, which is known as R. C.A.R. is the hardline supporter of federally funded abortions and the Freedoms of Choice Act. R.C.A.R. represents groups of liberal Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Brethren, Moravians, I don't know, Moravians, Jews, Humanists, and Unitarians. End of quote. There's a lot of, of mainline so-called pseudo-Christian religions that are totally in line with all this. God's command is that the church repent of her deeds and drive Jezebel out of the church and from our nation. Amen.
but they're not doing it. <laughs> why isn't Why isn't Schuler? Uh, he's the one that's got the Crystal Cathedral, right? Why isn't Schuler on his knees instead of giving some lukewarm, pathetic, prosperity, feel-good doctrine? Why isn't he on his knees? begging for God to forgive us and, and purging and exposing this evil every every week. That's what they should be doing. But, as Jesus said, they've omitted the weightier matters. They're just focusing on God's love and, and everything's going to be great and just give your money and it'll be all fine. And my people love to have it so. That's what the Bible talks about. They love it that way. When we do these types of things, um, and we drive Jezebel out of the church and from our nation, the scripture calls this ministry preparing the way of the Lord, in the same way that Elijah confronted the wicked rulers of this time, in the same way that John prepared the way for the advent of Christ. So God's people should first, should be fighting against this wickedness. And a lot of people say, oh, well, you're not meant to, you can't do anything about this and that. But, hold on, that's what John the Baptist did. Isn't that what he did? Isn't that what Elijah did? Isn't that what Jesus really did? Didn't he confront the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these types of things? You cannot preach the Bible and not confront wickedness. Because the Bible is diametrically opposed to wickedness. So you have to be confrontational. I, I'm not saying, you know, you don't pick and choose where you do this. But, you know, there's no other way around it. So, there are many ways in which the church has been called to prepare the way, the most notable being the Great Commission, to go out into the world to preach the gospel, but as Jezebel was Elijah's greatest challenge, we too must confront and defeat the foes of witchcraft that have manifested through abortion. Except it's a lot worse than it was in Revelation 2.20, the church of Thyatira. And just as Elijah was almost defeated by Jezebel, and John was killed by the witchcraft of Herod's wife, think about that. We must also realize that this battle is a deadly one. There can be no victory without radical commitment to fight witchcraft. In the spiritual pattern that led us to America's abortion holocaust is thus summarized. The demons gain a foothold in the earth through the incestuous acts of Lot's daughters. Okay, now I, I think we could boil it back a lot further because sin entered in with Adam and Eve, but... Um, this is a good point they're making here. Demons gained a foothold in the earth through the incestuous acts of Lot's daughters. His daughters got him drunk, had sex with him. From that, their descendants were the Ammonites, which became possessed and worshipped this spirit, identified variously as Ashtoreth, Asherah, Moloch, or Baal, through child sacrifice. Now, so, the, the byproduct of the incestuous children that Lot's daughters had was a race of people. One was the Ammonites, and they worshipped Ashtaroth, Moloch, and Baal, through child sacrifice. The gods and the goddesses of fertility were worshipped throughout the entire pagan world. Um, so, and, and again, the demons gained a foothold through, yes, the acts of Lot's daughters, but it also gained a huge foothold through what happened in Genesis 6, when the sons of God saw the daughters of men, saw that they were fair, there were giants in the earth in those days, that was an abomination, God had to wipe the whole earth out. We're also, we're not even making mention here to hear of what Nimrod did. Um, you know, so, there's a lot of ways it entered in. I don't want to totally just put it all in Lot's daughters. Um, so, 
gods and the goddesses of fertility were worshipped throughout this ancient pagan world and as part of a widespread Mother Earth cult. In the 17th century, in France, the goddess resurfaced as Ashtaroth. Witchcraft, as an organized religion, was revived in Europe and America beginning in the late 1950s and the 1960s, and finally goddess worship has resurfaced in a new 20th century feminist spirituality, and it's no coincidence that abortion today, that abortions today's, that, there's some misprints here, I'm sorry, that abortions today form is a form of child sacrifice that came right along with it through this revival of goddess worship and these types of things. Abortion is just part of the package. Okay, abort aside. It is important today to note that the historic rationale of those who in ancient times offered up their own children to idols, that the sacrifice of blood rejuvenated and strengthened the, the deity to whom which it was dedicated at the time binding him to the offer of the sacrifice. Now, this is super important, what I just read. Because, why did they do this? Why would anybody sacrifice their child? Well, in ancient times, it was known that you, when you offer up your own children to idols, that the sacrifice of the blood rejuvenated and strengthened the deity to whom which it was dedicated. So this would actually empower the very devil that you're dedicating it to. Whether it's Baal, Astaroth, Artemis, Lilith, Moloch, Chemoth, Whatever one, Isis, Aphrodite, whatever one you want to pick, you're empowering that devil, and most likely that's you're actually dealing with a fallen angel there. You're empowering that fallen angel or demon. And as these devils become more empowered, they have more of a foothold and can defile humanity even further. That's why they want it to happen. In other words, when they sacrificed their children to an idol, they became spiritual slaves to the fallen angel or demon it represented. Even more frightening was the effect upon the spirit. Upon the spirit, greater power was released through the outpouring of innocent blood, and it defiled the land. And the Bible says, because the land is defiled, okay, and we've read these verses before, because this land has been defiled because of things like sodomy, child sacrifice, what it ultimately does is the land will ultimately purge out the inhabitants. So I can't imagine what America's got in store for And I'm not saying God's not going to protect his elect and his remnant that haven't gone into this. But this is why the Bible says, Wherefore come up from among her and be separate, saith the Lord. You know, be not partaker of her plagues. That's why you want to get out of that system. This principle is borne out in 2 Kings 3, 26 and 27. One of the descendants of Lot's daughters, the king of Moab was about to face certain defeat in the hands of the Israelites. Now, again, you look down the road. Because of what Lot, what happened with Lot, now there's this King Moab, because this race was created. It's no different today with the Arabs. With Ishmael, when, when um, uh, Abraham took Ishmael, you know, the handmaiden, and because they ran ahead of God, and they didn't think that, that, that uh, Abraham and Sarah could have a child at, that, at their elderly age, well, they ran ahead of God, Ishmael conceived, and, um, oh, I'm sorry, Hag ha Hagar. Hagar conceived, had Ishmael. Ishmael is essentially the father, in part, of the modern-day Arab nations. Look at the fruit of that, okay? So you think, well, one little thing can't really matter down the road, and it matters more down the road, because when you plant a seed in the ground, the seed is always going to grow up and turn into... You know, if it turns into a big oak tree, that's a big deal compared to the seed that was first planted. 
So that's how we have to kind of look at sin. So, in 2 Kings 3, 26 and 27, one of the descendants of Lot's daughters, the king of Moab, was about to face certain defeat at the hands of Israelites. To prevent this from happening, he offered up his oldest son as a sacrifice. The fact that it was a burnt offering tells us it was undoubtedly mailed to Baal or Molech or Astaroth. What is sobering is that it worked. They were going against the Israelites and it worked. The Moabites defeated the Israelites on this occasion. The spiritual heritage of the Moabites and the Ammonites is passed down to our own day through abortion. Today the church is fighting against these same spiritual forces for the very survival of her nation, but in most part the church isn't fighting against this. Okay, Without all our spiritual warfare, what are our chances of victory when the demons of lust are being gorged on the blood of not just one, but over millions of children each day? See, we're feeding the enemy by having all these abortions. It's like you're throwing fuel on the demonic fire every time you get an abortion. Or abortions are, are, are happen. The land that God chose to bring his people into after their long captivity in Egypt was filled with nations that practiced child sacrifice. And what was his commandment to Israel? Well, let's go to Joshua 33, verse 51. Joshua 33. Oh, hold on here. It's not Joshua. There's no such thing as Joshua 33. Um, they quoted the wrong... Bible verse for me. Let's see here. Okay. Sorry about that. Wrong, wrong Bible verse. They had transposed some numbers here. But the verse they're in reference to, paraphrased, is when you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then shall you drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you, and destroy all their molten images, and demolish all their high places. Now God also had them, many times, kill every man, woman, beast, and child in the city limits, or, or whatever. Well, that sounds really cruel, but here's the problem. The humanity in that region had been so incredibly defiled, there was no other choice, because the seed had been corrupted. Once the seed is corrupted, there's no redemption for a corrupted seed. I hate to say that. See, a tear that grows up a tear, like the Bible talks about tear and wheat, There's, is there anything you can do? Is there any magic wand you can wave over a weed and make it wheat? I don't know of any. A weed is a weed, and wheat is wheat. Uh, now, a lot of times people say, well, that means that there's certain people that can't be saved. Well, you know, in God's economy, could a Nephilim be saved? Could a Nephilim that was part fallen angel and part... I don't see how that's possible. Why? Because the seed had been corrupted. Why else, if there was people in there that could be saved in those cities, why would God tell the Israelites to kill every man, woman, child, baby, and beast? Because everything had been so corrupted. The seeds had been corrupted. You had to kill everything and start over. Well, where does he do that in the Bible? Well, what about the great flood? He had to kill everybody on the planet. If there was a lot of people that could be saved or would have been saved, why would he have done that? That's why the Bible calls Noah perfect in, in, in his days. It's not because he was living in sinless perfection, because we know he wasn't. But I don't believe the one thing about Noah that was perfect is that his seed had not been corrupted. Okay, He wasn't corrupted by these beings. Now, let me just 
go backward here real quick. Okay, so where do we get some more confirmation of this? Well, let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, and this is after the serpent or Satan had deceived Eve, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thy dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. That's why snakes crawl on the ground on their belly. Okay? Whether they had appendages before the fall, I don't know, but there's a pretty good chance they might have. That'd be funny looking, a snake with appendages. snake with arms and legs. Anyway, uh, again, I can't be dogmatic. And I will put enmities talking to Satan. Okay? And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. He's distinguishing Satan and the woman. And then he's going to distinguish it even more. And between thy seed, Satan's seed, and her seed. Two distinct separate seed lines. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So, what we're talking about here is two distinct seed lines. That there's going to be enmity between. Okay? And he specifically talks about Satan's seed and the woman's seed. Okay? So... This is why, once the seed becomes corrupted, it has to be destroyed, because there's no redemption of a seed. And I can, and again, we can cite all those things in the Bible, all the times they had to go into these, these cities and kill every man, woman, beast. And you, you think of that on a temporal level, and you're like, wow, you know, God's really harsh. But would it have been more merciful for, for God to let certain people live, and then for them to come in and re-corrupt Israel. But see, that's what ended up happening anyway. Because toward the end, they stopped doing that. They stopped obeying his commandments. I mean, that's why Saul got in so much trouble at the very end, because he didn't go in there and do what he was supposed to do. He didn't do that. And ultimately, that was that was it for God. He's like, okay, you're done. He died in the next battle. And he, after he went to the Witch of Endor, tried to get advice. So, this is a very serious matter. And it's a, it's a matter that's hardly ever, ever talked about. Because, you know, they want to say God's a God of love and this and that. God is a God of love. He's a God of mercy. The most merciful thing for him to do is to get rid of these seeds because there's no redemption for the seeds. What are the seeds going to do if they're corrupted? They're going to corrupt everything around them. That's what they're going to do. A weed that goes into a field, is it going to make the crop yield better? Is, is Okay, and the Bible talks a lot about a Christian bearing fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, faith, temperance. These types of things. You know, weeds cannot help that process. Weeds are going to choke out and typically take over where good seed would normally yield. That's why God had to have these pronouncements in the Old Testament. So this scripture that we talked about in Joshua provides a model for our response to child sacrifice in our era. The Old Testament is not just a collection of stories, but provides temporal examples of what we must accomplish in the spiritual realm. In the same way, for example, the people of God, Israel, followed a man named Joshua into the Promised Land. So the church, so the church follows the Lord Jesus Christ into the land of promise to the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. Okay? <clears throat> Everything that the Israelites underwent has a direct New Covenant application. Remember, Christ is the better covenant. All things have passed away. 
you know, these types of things. So, not to say that the law was bad or evil and these types of things, but Christ was referred to as a better covenant. So, everything that the Israelites underwent has a new direct, a direct new covenant application. In this passage, God commands His people, past and present, to destroy all idolatry. How do we accomplish this in light of the new covenant? Should we, like the ancient Israel, begin to attack individuals responsible for idolatry, I mean, from a physical sense? And of course not, no. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, as we said this before. It's a spiritual battle, and that's what we're trying to reiterate here today. It's absolutely, purely a spiritual battle. What ultimately happened to the Israelites, though. The book of Judges recounts their initial steps into apostasy. Instead of totally destroying and driving out the Canaanites, they began enslaving them. The result of their disobedience is seen in one of the most tragic passages of Scripture. If we go to Psalm 106, verse 34, and I'm sorry, I'm getting ready to wrap up here in a second. I had no idea this was going to take this long to get through all of this today. So... Uh, Psalm 106, verse 34. <clears throat> God speaking to Israel. This was the result of what of them not being obedient to God <clears throat> once and after they came and possessed the promised land. They did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord God commanded them. Okay, so they didn't destroy these nations. Okay? but were mingled among the heathen and learned their works. This is what modern day Christendom is all about. It's totally part of the world. They learned their works. And they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils. So they did the same with child sacrifice back then as in a way we're doing now. Because I'm sure there's many so-called Christians out there that go and they have their abortions and they probably don't see a whole lot wrong with it. I mean, hey, if you've got people at the head of Lutherans and uh, Episcopals and all these other people, and they're the head of churches and they're pro-abortion, why wouldn't their congregation be? And shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto idols of Canaan. So this is how, this is where Israel went, ultimately, after they came in and took the promised land. They, they, they went right back into child sacrifice. And the land was polluted with blood. Because that's what happens to the land. It becomes defiled. How much more so America and this world that we live in now. Thus they were defiled with their own works, and went a-whoring after their own inventions. Therefore was the wrath of the Lord kindled against His people. Notice it says His people. Remember, the Bible says, Judgment must begin at the house of the Lord. Because when the house of the Lord drops the ball, God judges the house of God. Typically, He judges them through the wicked. Insomuch that he abhorred his own inheritance. This is what God feels about his own inheritance. And he gave them into the hand of the heathen. This is what's coming to America. We're, I'm sorry. And they that hated them ruled over them. And ultimately this is all coming because his people learned the way of the heathen. And practice it. Their enemies also oppressed them and they were brought into subjection in their land. You feel like the walls are closing in? You, you look at the news and in the stuff that I put out, Big Brother coming. Oh. But the Bible says, when you do this, as a nation who calls yourself Christian, here's going to be the end byproduct. And again, it's not to say God's not going to protect His remnant or isn't capable of protecting His remnant. Their enemies also oppressed them and they, they brought them into subjection into the land. Many times, he did, many times did He deliver them. 
This is God's mercy. But they provoked him with their counsel. And they were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded... He regarded their affliction when he heard their cry, and he remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of, mer of his mercies, so that he, so he made them also to be pitied of all those carried them captives. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen to give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph unto his praise. Now this is this last part, verse forty-four through forty-seven through forty-eight, is the hope. Okay, it's a hope. There's still time. You know, do I think this is going to happen in America? No, but I think that the, that the remnant that cries out can obtain this mercy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise you, the Lord. So through abortion, we have followed precisely the same slippery slope to destruction. In fact, we are already there. Ezekiel 16, verse 20. Ezekiel... 16, verse 20. <clears throat> God speaking to uh, Israel. Moreover, thou hast taken thy sons and thy daughters, whom thou hast borne unto me, which would be the firstborn, under the Levitical Old Testament law, firstborn. So they've taken their sons and their daughters. This is how far Israel had fallen. So far, you know, many have fallen. And these hast thou sacrificed unto them to be devoured. Is this of thy whoredoms a small matter? This is how God views abortion and child sacrifice. Thou that thou hast slain my children, my children, they're God's children, and delivered them to cause them to pass through the fire for them. They were sacrificing them to Moloch. They were burning them in the fire. And in all thine abominations and whoredoms, thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth, when thou wast naked and bare and was polluted in thy blood. That's why the Bible says, Remember the pit from which thou was dug. And then it says, Woe, woe unto thee, saith the Lord God. And the Bible basically says in Exodus 13.2, when it, when it says, when it talks here about um, the sons and daughters you have born unto me, the key to that is in Exodus 13.2, which essentially says, Sanctify unto me every firstborn and the first offspring of every womb of the sons of Israel, both man and beast, it belongs to me. But see, Satan said, no, no, I want the firstborn. Because you're going to have to serve me. Well, of course, they didn't have to, but they chose to. So, he wanted the firstborn. The firstborn was traditionally considered born under the Lord. History and archaeology have shown us the child sacrifice, as with the example of the king of Moab, centered on the firstborn child. It is, and remember, the king of Moab offered his firstborn son, and he won that battle. Okay. See, there's benefit to witchcraft. People do this, and it's not because there's no benefit. It's purely self-centered benefit. But there's benefit, temporal. Remember, sin is pleasurable for a season. I don't see how that could be pleasurable. Sacrificing your own kid, even if you're wicked. How could that be pleasurable? I, I don't know. Uh, then it goes on to say, um, it is the simple irony or coincidence that the majority of children that will face the abortionist knife in this country are also firstborn set apart for the Lord. We would all do well, especially those who are pro-abortion, to remember that we were once naked, bare, dependent on others, older than ourselves, for a chance to live. You know, I, I, like I said earlier, if you, could, if you could talk to these abortion people, you know, you could ask them, aren't you glad your mom didn't abort you? You know, so what gives you the right to slaughter 
you know, an innocent baby. If your mom didn't slaughter you, you wouldn't even be here if she had done that. The Israelites chose for the site of their sacrificial rituals a place called the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. This valley, which still goes by that name today, is right outside of Jerusalem. The Valley of the Son of Hinnom translates into the Greek as Gehenna, which is also another word used for hell. It is significant to note that Jesus himself introduced and used this word, one that was fully recognized by the common people of his day as a name of the valley where child sacrifice took place. He used this word to describe the eternal habitation of Satan himself. Because that's the worst thing that you can do, and that's the thing I think that would please Satan more than anything, is child sacrifice. In light of this, Jesus' Jesus' words in Matthew 16-18 become a stirring cry to action for his church to fight abortion. And upon this rock I will build my church in the gates of hell. In that particular phrase, the, the word hell is, is used as Gehenna, if, from the Greek, uh, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates are not offensive weapons, but defensive. The gates of hell are erected to protect Satan's kingdom and to keep the church out. Jesus' use of the word Gehenna clearly substantiates that there is no greater manifestation of hell on earth than the sacrifice of children. Some very interesting points here. Today, walls, both spiritual and natural, have been erected to protect this so-called right. Right to kill is what it should be called. Jesus has called this fight against the forces of evil, uh, Jesus has, has called us to fight against the forces of evil and warn the unsaved. Um, now, if we go to Proverbs 24.11... Proverbs 24.11 If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he ponder the heart and consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul doth not know it, and shall not he render every man according to his work? So this is a warning here to um, try to deliver those that are drawn unto death, if it be possible. And those are ready to be slain or, or plunged into hell. Now this is also referred to also as the sin of silence. Um, that, that you know we, we can look at and um, talk about. And this is why I tend to take tracks with me places and, and um, um, do these sermons and these types of things. Because you know it's, it's my duty to warn people against this. But usually what it will get you is reproach. But oh well, our lives are not popularity contests as Christians. Ezekiel 3 and 33 also make mention that if the warmen, if the watchmen see the uh, sword coming to the city and warn out the city, then their blood will be required at the watchman's hands. Some of this is actually motivated out of fear of the Lord, which isn't a, which isn't a wrong motivation. Um, history tells us that neo-paganism has experienced sporadic revivals, but also that the church has had great success in openly confronting the witchcraft and the practice of child sacrifice. But whenever the church has compromised with the pagan culture, which is what it's doing now, particularly in America, she herself has become paganized, which is exactly what's happened, eventually committing the same practices that she was commissioned to expose and bring down. Isn't that ironic? Pagan cultures that have worshipped false gods and practiced human sacrifice, the Canaanites, the Carthagians, Carth- the Ezeans, the Celts, the, the Celts, the Nordic people, the Aztecs, Nazi Germany faced imminent destruction. 
this scenario is being replayed today. We now have the laws that make it federal felony for Christians to peacefully blockade an abortion clinic and are on the verge of making mercy killing legal. We are then facing the imminent paganism of our culture and the inevitable judgment of God. So, in conclusion, America is turning towards the pagan religion only because the church has become culturally, culturally irrelevant and is not having an impact on our society. They have ceased to be salt and light, okay, for the most part. Christians are losing the battle for the same reason that the pagans are gaining a foothold. Most modern Christians are ignorant of this historical precedent for, precedent for revival, even in the face of militant paganism. The average Christian is content to meet on Sunday to worship God, yet is not politically active. Of course, you know, politics is so much rigged, okay, so, but they're saying he's not politically active and will not contribute in such a way to Christianize the nation. Again, really about being salt and light. With pagan immorality being codified at the highest levels of government, there is a great need for the church to fulfill her prophetic role of resistance to idolatry. And with this governmental um, condonement of abortion, and now with the they're trying to railroad the hate crimes bills, then it's going to be overtly illegal to even speak out against it. Okay? And again, we, we have to, to realize that, that this is not fought so much from any kind of, of um, physical means, but more from a spiritual standpoint. Looking at Ephesians 6, knowing that our battle is not against flesh and blood, putting on the full armor of God, knowing that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through the pulling down of strongholds, and that's in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. And then the, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to, to the dividing of the soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And that's in Hebrews 4.12. So, um, these are things... Verses we need to really keep in mind in regard to this battle. Because it's not a flesh and blood battle. But is it still possible for God's people to turn the tide towards righteousness? Um, well, yes, but that would take, you know, action. And the action I don't see from a biblical standpoint happening. Bible says that God will send strong delusion, that they will believe a lie, that they will all be damned who receive not the love of the truth in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. So... We don't see a lot of scriptural precedent for that, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't keep fighting. Because if we don't fight, who's going to? And we know we're going to win eventually. We may end up dying. We may end up being martyred, but we're still ultimately going to end up winning. So that, um, so that we don't succumb to defeatism, let's consider the dark hour that Israel was in when she was in bondage to slavery in Egypt. In that day, thousands of baby boys were slaughtered by Pharaoh in an attempt to stamp out the prophetic deliverer who was about to come on the scene. Although Satan tried to do away with Moses, his life was spared and he grew to be a man within the Pharaoh's own courts. Later Moses delivered Israel out of bondage, well, through the Lord. In Elijah's day, the prophets of Baal sacrificed thousands of the firstborn on altars in defiance of God's law. Yet Elijah slew the prophets of Baal and God and later raised up a company of 7,000 men who defeated King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Then, just before Jesus was born, the wicked king Herod learned through the astrologers that another king was about to be born in Jerusalem, yet the baby Jesus' life was spared so that he might grow to a man and offer the final sacrifice, the only one that is able to cleanse us from all sin and deliver us from all unrighteousness. We have to ask ourselves, is history repeating itself today? Totally yes. Although the hour is dark in America, does God have a prophetic 
generation today who are destined to go forth to confront wickedness and change our nation. Remember, there's always a remnant. Consider yourself very um, blessed if you're hearing these things and you know this stuff and you know better and, and this, you know, obviously if you know the Bible, this should all ring true, what we're talking about today here. Consider yourself blessed because most Christians have their eyes, or people that call themselves Christians, have their eyes totally darkened to these matters. And most of the time these people are going to end up in hell. Not to say we're better. Because okay, that's the thing you don't want to start doing, is thinking you're better. But, consider yourself blessed. Um, practically, there are many ways you can resist modern day paganism. Number one, recognize that abortion is a spiritual issue. Abortion is a sacrifice of human preborn infants on the altar of convenience by those with a pagan worldview. Abortion is not just a political or social issue. It is a spiritual issue. Witchcraft is the spiritual force behind the politics of abortion. And, you know, Lilith, Artemis, Moloch, Chemosh, Baal, and all these other deities. These are things that you can pray against. These specific deities. By name. Okay? I don't think we're supposed to bring railing accusations against them either. Like the Bible says, don't do. But, you know, Michael said, you know, the Lord rebuke you. These types of things. Number two, we can engage in spiritual warfare against demonic forces behind a child sacrifice. There are many forms where this can take place, but spiritual warfare is most effective when you appear physically at the abortuary nearest to your home. It is important for the church in America to go to the places where the killing is taking place and intercede on behalf of the unborn. You can go to these abortion clinics and park your car there and pray. Okay? You're on the premises. I'm telling you, there's a different dynamic that takes place when you go there than when you do it from home. Because the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all they that dwell therein. Well, if that's the case, why should Satan have a spot on earth where child sacrifice is going on and he's getting away with it and it's legal? You go there and, and you pray. And you pray against these things. And I'm probably going to do a teaching in the near future on tenets of praying in situations like this. Because there's a lot of stuff we're not told in regard to prayer. It is important for the Church of America to go to the places where the killing is taking place to intercede on behalf of the unborn. Prayer for the mercy of God to spare the unborn and to put an end to abortion in our nation must be accomplished by real activism on the part of the Church. Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail you know, against the Church. Number three, evangelism. Many abortion advocates are not secularists, but are deeply spiritual people. <laughs> Wiccans are deeply spiritual people. They are drawn to the spiritual power of the occult practices. Some of the most meaningful evangelical outreaches occur before the very gates of hell at the abortion clinics of America. Two of the most notable examples in the recent years are Norma McCorvey, the Roe of Roe vs. Way, and Dr. Bernard Nathanson, a former abortion doctor, both of whom were reached through evangelical witness of pro-life activists. God can pour out His grace on those practicing human sacrifice, but they must repent. Pray that God will touch. Pray that God will touch that deep spiritual impulse in abortionists to seek reconciliation to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that ends that for today, and I will go ahead and close this out in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that you have given us, Lord. You've let us meet again.
At this time, we praise you, Lord God. We thank you for all your goodness and mercy which you bestowed upon us. For the truth, Lord God, that you have shown us. I pray, Lord God, that I put forth truth this day. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that the body of Christ would go forth every day. Put forth truth. Fight against this wickedness, Lord God. We would be in a repentant mode. That the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. Lord God, that we would be meek and humble before you. And before men, Lord, that your fear would be upon us and upon those that we would witness to and upon the sin-sick world, and that that fear would ultimately drive people to repentance. But, Lord God, at the same time that you would judge the wicked, Lord God, that will not repent, that will not change, in the name of Jesus Christ, the tares that are here among us, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all men would see and fear and declare the work of God that they would wisely consider of your doing. According to... Psalm 64, Lord, and that you would protect us, Lord God, from the secret counsel of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity, in the name of Jesus Christ. For without your protection, we would all perish. We thank you, Lord God, for all your goodness and mercy. I do pray, God, that you would forgive us for any and all sins that we have committed in any way, shape, and form, that you would wipe our slate clean. Words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. We thank you, Lord God. We praise you. And we ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.